Well, I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians 1. You'll need a Bible to follow along uh, in the message, so these brothers have some Bibles as they make their way to the back. And get their attention if you need a Bible, and they'll get one of those to you. It's marked for you at 1 Thessalonians. Keep that Bible. It's our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 1. I also encourage you to take out the outline for the message that's inserted in your program. We do that every week. We have an outline in your program. You can take that out now, and we'll make reference to that in just a bit. One of the key concepts that I've learned over the years in biblical counseling is that we all live according to a sense of identity. That is, how one views his or herself will affect how they think and talk and behave. If they see themselves as a loser, always saying the wrong thing, never good enough for the crowd, then you'll hear that in what they say and you'll see it in what they do or refuse to do. When Kim and I were expecting our first child, Lainey, we read and talked a lot about Christian parenting and all that that would entail. And this issue of identity came up often. We came away convinced that one of our chief duties as parents was to give our children an accurate understanding of who they are and whose they are so that they would in turn live out that understanding. They need to know that they are made in the image of God and therefore they are special among all of God's creation. But in addition to that, they need to grasp what the Bible says about each individual human being fearfully and wonderfully made and that each has gifts from God that are their own. They need to know all of that because all of that is true simply by virtue of being human. It's all natural and it applies to everyone. But beyond that, they need to see the spiritual dimension for which they were made Namely, a relationship with the God from whom we come into this world estranged due to our sin nature. That's remedied marvelously by only the person and work of Jesus Christ. And therefore, our girls needed to begin learning about him even while they were in the womb. The songs and verses and prayers were said to and for them. Everyone lives out of a sense of identity. And so having an accurate understanding of who we are is foundational to obedience. This is why the Bible often reminds us of who we are before it tells us what to do. When we truly understand our position before God, then it motivates us to act in accordance with who we are. We see this in Titus chapter 2, for example. For the Bible says the grace of God, the grace of God that gives us our identity in Christ, the grace of God has an effect then on how we live. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. This idea that behavior flows from identity is true for every individual But it's also true for collections of individuals in any group, including the church. God has given his church a mission to carry out, but we carry it out in light of our relationship with him. 
It flows from our understanding of all that he's done for us. And we respond in ways then that are consistent with that self-identity. So in the words of the title of today's message, which is at the top of that outline that you have, we are given, given by God in order to give to others. That is, we've been given the grace of God and we in turn become conduits of God's grace to others. Now, today we continue the series begun last week in the book of First Thessalonians, in which we see a church that God calls a model for others. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see many reasons why this church was an exemplary one, but it begins with how they saw themselves. In today's passage, we'll see that they are reminded of who they are in Christ, and in turn, that's a reminder for us. 1 Thessalonians tells us what it is that God looks for in a church. Beginning with a church that is confident in its identity and that lives out that identity in its mission. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we see that. Father, we're before you with open hearts, attentive minds. To look into your word to see what you say about what the church is to be. And Lord, our church is only going to be as good as the individuals that comprise it and our obedience to you. That obedience is to be motivated not out of a mechanical legalistic duty, but rather out of overflowing grateful hearts because of our identity in Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to see that today and may we indeed be motivated to leave this place more equipped, and more desirous of serving you and bringing glory to you in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, as we consider who we are as God's people in his church, the first thing that's true of us that I say in your outline is this. We've been blessed by the gospel. And that blessing from the gospel begins with the fact that, as I say in the outline, we have been chosen. We've been blessed by the gospel. And that blessing, first of all, begins with our being chosen. Verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians 1. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now notice that this verse begins with the word for, which connects it with what precedes. In the verses just before the one Paul, who wrote 1 Thessalonians, gives us, In those verses that we saw last week, verses 1 through 3, he's giving thanks for the Thessalonians' work produced by faith. For what he says in verse 3 is their labor prompted by love and their endurance inspired by hope. And then verse 4 is saying that you have all of this for or because God has chosen you. So I'm thankful, says Paul, for all of this in your life. But all of this is in your life because for Those of you loved by God, he has chosen you. The word that's translated chosen is a Greek word that means literally to pick out, to select. We get our English word eclectic from it. So if you're a Christian, God has chosen you. It's a marvelous and humbling and motivating truth if it's understood and embraced as it gives us a secure identity in our relationship with God, that he chose us because he loves us. That's what verse 4 says. 
And yet, instead of delighting in this truth, many people chafe against it. They say or they think to themselves things like, I don't want God to be the one who decides. I want it to be me. After all, who is God to violate my free will, even if it's out of love for me? And so this issue that's clearly taught in God's word in order for us to love the God who first loved us instead becomes a point of controversy and Satan must be thrilled. Sometimes folks ask, hey, do you believe in election? Well, listen, it's really a misplaced question, you know. Because for any Bible believer, you have to believe in election because election's a Bible word. You just saw it. Chosen is election. It's used a number of times in your Bible. So if you believe the Bible, then you have to believe in election. The question is, what do you believe about election? So let me give just a few passages that teach that God chose us, that God elected us for salvation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each of these passages since it happens that the entirety of our lesson and master plan for life last week during the 11 o'clock hour which we will continue today. And if you haven't been attending that, I encourage you to start today. And if you didn't hear that lesson last week, it was about this topic as it happens. And you can listen to that and you can download the notes at our website. But Jesus said in John chapter 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, he, God, chose us in Christ Before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, you read that and you say, ah, he didn't choose me to be saved. He chose us to be holy and blameless. Well, one, you can't be holy and blameless unless you're saved. One. But two, 2 Thessalonians 2 says this, from the beginning he chose you to be saved, as a matter of fact. And then in turn to be holy and blameless. Acts 13 When they heard this, when they heard the gospel message, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, you may read those passages and there are many more, but you may read that and you say, yes, but that's conditional. God knew that I was going to choose him. So God chose me because I chose him. In other words, my choice was first and then God said, yeah, me too, what they said. But that's not true either, scripturally. Romans chapter 9. Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, God said, the older will serve the younger. And then it goes on to ask, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, compassion on whom I have compassion. Now notice this. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or man's effort, but on God's mercy. Ah, but still yet, some will say, but doesn't that deny our responsibility? I mean, how can God hold us responsible if all that happens is by his choice, by his election? How can he do that? Well, I'm glad you asked, and more important, the Apostle Paul is glad you asked, because he anticipated that very question in this very chapter in Romans 9. And he says this, some of you will say, then why does God still blame us? Why are we responsible? Because who resists his will? 
You see his answer? But who are you to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? You see, Paul is in effect saying, look, even if you can't wrap your mind around it, even if you don't understand it, this is what God does. And he's the creator and we're the creature. And so with all of that, you can define election. What do you believe about election? It's this. It's God's free, sovereign, unconditional choice of those who will be saved. That raises questions like, well, then why preach the gospel? Why evangelize? Why give the gospel to people? If, in fact, those who are going to be saved are those who God has has chosen, why witness or preach? Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher in London in the 19th century, was asked, why don't you, because he believed all that I just said, and he was asked, why don't you preach only to the elect? And he said, you show me who they are and I will. You see, the truth is we don't know who they are until after the fact. We preach the gospel and we see who responds further. God's word teaches that God has ordained not only the ends, but the means to those ends. So why is this mentioned here? So early on in this letter to this model church that beloved, those that God loved, he chose you. Why does Paul mention that early on, right at the beginning of this letter? Why is it so important for the Thessalonians? Well, some background on that will help a bit. Acts chapter 17 in your Bible. Acts chapter 17 records Paul, who wrote 1 Thessalonians, visiting the city of Thessalonica and bringing the gospel to them. And he found there, Acts chapter 17 tells us, what the Bible calls God-fearers. There were people in Thessalonica who fit that description of God-fearers. Now, when we say so-and-so is a God-fearing person, we just mean that someone is devout, that they are mindful of their place before God. But this was a technical designation for Gentiles who were apparently disenchanted with the pagan Gentile gods and ethical systems that had emerged from their pagan religion, and they had converted to Judaism. So the God-fearers were Gentiles who practiced Jewish customs. So they attended the Jewish synagogue and they heard Old Testament teachings like the Jews are God's chosen people. And for Gentiles, that would naturally then raise the question, well, what about us? Can Gentiles be part of God's chosen people as well, apart from a birthright and formal observance of the Old Testament law? And Paul insists here that the answer is yes. You see, friends, the uniqueness of the church as distinct from Israel is that the church is made of one body comprised of Jews and Gentiles alike. And so important was this issue of this new thing that has now been formed, the body of Christ, the church, beginning in Acts chapter 2, with Jews and Gentiles alike. So important was that issue that four times in the book of Acts, four times, We're given a report about different groups of people who've been brought into the body of Christ by virtue of having received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The first time that occurred was in Acts chapter 2, and there were Jews there. Jews brought into the church by the baptism of the Spirit. First time it occurred, Acts chapter 2. But then you have Acts chapter 8. 
And in Acts chapter 8, you have another group of people, not just Jews, but Samaritans. You remember who the Samaritans were? They were half-breed Jews. They were the products of intermarriage between Jews and Gentiles. They were despised by the Jews. And so it was important early on in the history of the first century church for God to make clear that they too can be brought into the body of Christ by the baptism of the Spirit. Acts chapter 8, that happened. Acts chapter 10, the household of a man named Cornelius. The Bible tells us Cornelius was one of these God-fearers, a Gentile who practiced Jewish customs. Baptism of the Spirit occurs to Cornelius and his household. So you have Jews, you have Samaritans, you have God-fearers. And then when you come to Acts chapter 19, you have a fourth and final group of people. That's your run-of-the-mill, garden-variety Gentiles in the city of Ephesus, and they too are baptized in the Spirit and brought into the body of Christ. And so as Paul writes to this church in Thessalonica, he wants them to know that you have the same standing that your Jewish brothers and sisters had. That the things you heard in the synagogue about them being God's chosen people, it's true of you as well. You have been chosen and loved by God. The same Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, that is Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Now there are a number of positive effects that should occur when we understand and appropriate and believe this biblical notion of God choosing us, election. Let me give you a few. One, It should give us security in our position in Christ. Because you see, friends, who you are in Christ and your position in Christ is not about what you did. It's about what he determined to do before you were ever created. And the Bible teaches that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So it should give us security. It should also give us a humility. Humility. Our salvation is not because of us, and we can't even fully understand it all. That should humble us. Further, it should teach us this issue that God chooses who's in his family, that other members of the family are chosen by him and not by us. Have you ever thought about that? We don't get to choose who comes into the body of Christ. The truth is many of us would like to do that, wouldn't we? (laughs) And how do we show that we would like to do that? Here's how we show it. By only hanging out with the people who are like us. We only like the people who are like us. And the body of Christ is not to be that. God is the one who chooses those who are to be in his family. He sovereignly and through his providence brings us together to this place and this time for such a time as this. So we must love those who may be outside our comfort zone because they are not like us. And to underscore the Thessalonians' equal status with all others in the body of Christ, he calls them, in verse 4, brothers and sisters. Paul, a former Pharisee, would have been familiar with the morning prayer of a Pharisee, which said, God, I thank you I was not born a Gentile, or a slave, or a woman. He was well acquainted with the fact that Gentiles were considered dogs by the Jews, and yet he calls them here brothers and sisters. 
And he also says in verse four, he knows that they've been chosen. How does he know that? How can he know God has chosen since that choice took place in eternity past? Well, in your New Testament, there are two words that Greek words that are translated no. One is the Greek word oida, which most often refers to observed facts. And then there is the word gnosko, which refers to knowing something by experience. Here he uses that word for observation. He was not there in the past, but he can see the effect of their election in the present. He knows they were chosen. And we know we were chosen because, as I say now in your outline, because we've been saved. So we've been blessed by the gospel. That blessing begins with the fact that we've been chosen. But we know we've been chosen by the fact that we've been saved. Verse 5. Because, here's how I know this. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. He's saying, I know that you are saved because the way the gospel came to you it had its good effect. The Bible says in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So in Acts chapter 17, when Paul went to Thessalonica, he gave the word of God and, and they heard. The fact is no one is saved apart from the hearing of the gospel. And those who do hear it have the possibility of salvation. But notice, when people hear the gospel, what they have is the possibility of salvation. But merely because the gospel is brought and preached does not mean it will necessarily take root in the heart of the individual. God must bless the preaching in order to produce salvation. And that's why theologians speak of something called the general call of the gospel and the effectual call of the gospel. The general call of the gospel is that the gospel goes out generally to a general audience, to anyone who is willing to hear. But the effectual call is the move of God, the Holy Spirit, on the heart of some so that it has its good effect. And Paul here in verse 5 is speaking of the effectual call of the gospel. Jesus had said many are called. That's the general call. But do you remember? Many are called, but few are chosen. So verse 5 is speaking of this effectual call of the gospel. It's the same message, but it had good effect on some, falls on deaf ears for others. The initial proof that they are God's chosen is that they responded to the message. It was effective, as it always is, on God's people because it was attended by, verse 5, power, the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. All of us who are saved. We are so because God has graciously chosen us and he has sent the message to us with great power and effect. You just for a moment, think about the moment you were saved. And whatever that circumstance, in a Sunday school class as a child, at the knee of a mother or a grandmother, being in church, reading the Bible yourself. Just past week, I heard the testimony of a man from Iran who was given a Bible somehow in Iran. He read the Bible and he was saved by reading the Bible on his own. 
In turn, he was persecuted. His legs were broken. He had to leave overnight because he was going to be executed the next day. He traveled through Armenia to the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, where he is now serving and setting up a station to train Iranian house church leaders to go back to Iran and teach the gospel. We, in the fall, are going to have Rob Howell here. Some of you know Rob. Rob is going to be part of that ministry, and he's going to come and tell us all about it. But notice, this guy read the Bible, and it was the effectual call for him. Deep conviction. The power of the Holy Spirit. All of us are like that. If we're saved, we are so because God has graciously chosen us, and he sent his message with this power and its effect, however it came to us. So the gospel has come to us with effect, and therefore, I say in your outline, The gospel has changed us. End of verse 5. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. So this change that the gospel makes in us shows up in a number of ways. The first of which is we follow the Lord. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Notice it's plural. So they followed us. And who are us? Well, back in verse 1, we saw last week, that certainly includes Paul, verse 1, but it also includes Silas and it includes Timothy. You became followers of Paul and his entourage. Paul said elsewhere, follow me as I follow Christ. So friends, this lays great importance on the life and character of the messenger. Because at first, for a new convert, practically all they know of Christ is what they see in us. Have you ever considered that? So if you're going to witness for Jesus on the job, you can't be a jerk. Otherwise, people then think Jesus produces people like that. The word translated imitators is the one from which we get our English word mimic. The Thessalonians sought to mimic Paul and Silas and Timothy and then ultimately Christ. So we've been changed by the gospel in that we externally follow the Lord. But then there's also an internal change of attitude. Verse 6. You welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So this change that the gospel makes is seen in the fact that we follow the Lord, but also in the fact that we experience joy in trial. Now, friends, the fact that someone can experience joy in trial is definitely a supernatural work. It certainly is not natural for us to face difficulty with joy. The word that's translated joy in verse 6 is karain. It's related to the Greek word in your New Testament that's translated grace, charis. You see, this attitude of peace, this attitude of contentment, this attitude of abiding delight that God is at work in my life that is joy, even in severe trial, is a gracious gift of God. It's from God's grace. Now, suffering was a way of life for the first century believer. So no one would have said in the first century to be a Christian is a good idea because you can make business contacts with other people in the church and stuff like that. Nobody would have said it's a good idea. It's a smart move, humanly speaking. 
And in our day, in the absence of persecution, it becomes easy to say I'm a Christian, doesn't it? I don't know if this is going to happen in my lifetime. I'm not a prophet. But there is coming a day when the U.S. church is going to face some persecution. It may happen in my lifetime. And when that happens, it's going to separate the men from the boys, as it were. And the women from the girls. It's going to separate those who are true possessors from those who are merely professors. And I believe there are many in the church who are professors and not possessors. An amusement park. You know how when you're at an amusement park, everybody's got a T-shirt and you have to go interminably for two hours through the turnstile going back and forth. And you see that same T-shirt about every 20 minutes. And so you're reading all the T-shirts. One of them said, it had this on it. Jesus, Satan, heaven, hell, life, death. And then at the bottom it said, no brainer. I mean, Jesus versus Satan, heaven versus hell, life versus death, that's a no brainer. Well, yeah, but it's a no brainer because it's not costly. But you see, if you're presented with a cost in following Jesus, in what it means to be someone bound for heaven, in order to partake of and show eternal life. Oh, then it becomes a brainer for sure. So I do not pray certainly for the persecution of the church. I'd rather that we all lived all out for the gospel in the comfort that we now enjoy. That would be best, friends. But if persecution is needed, then indeed, Lord, do what is necessary. The third evidence of our having been changed by the gospel is the fruit that's born in our lives. Verse 7. You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So the Thessalonians became an example, a model for other believers in surrounding regions. This word for model is tupos. They became a type. You were the prototype. You were the model for everyone else to aspire to. So this is what God looks for in a church. And it's the only church in the New Testament of whom this is said. So, friends, we've been blessed. And because we've been blessed, in your outline, we must be a blessing to others. All that's been said so far focuses on God's work in our lives and its effects. But now in verses 8 through 10, it focuses on our response to God's gracious blessings to us. We live out of our identity as loved, chosen, saved, changed children of God. Living out the gospel means being a blessing to others as we, I say in the outline, proclaim the gospel. Verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. The Lord's message, it says, rang out from you. That is the gospel. That's the Lord's message. And when it says it rang out, it's a word for a trumpet blast or thundering. The sound of the gospel resonated in the air such that it reached Macedonia, Achaia, and everywhere. So friends, our commitment to the gospel at this church, if we're going to follow a model church like this, it must be such that we will do all that we can to ensure that we touch as many lives with the gospel as we possibly can. Now, consider this. The system by which they spread the word was quite archaic compared to what we have today. I mean, it rang out from you, but how did it ring out? There's no television. There's no radio. There's no print media. So it was archaic compared to what we have today. It went out on foot and word of mouth. And here we are with 
tools at our disposal to make contact with people so we can present the truth. That's all changed, but one thing has not changed. Relationships are still the best form of evangelism, and that involves both relationship and the speaking of the word. Now, most of you know that each year we establish objectives for our church to accomplish so that we can fulfill our 10-year plan, the 10-year plan we unveiled last year. We completed our first 15 years as a church and the 15-year plan that went with it. And now we have a new plan, a 10-year plan. Why a 10-year rather than 15-year? You've heard me say, the older I get, the shorter the plans become. (laughs) When you hear me make the six-month plan... (laughs) This year, our emphasis is on outreach and evangelism, and we're going to cover that emphasis at our, ser- our annual servant seminars on March 24 and 25. It's the same seminar offered twice, so mark those Saturday and Sunday dates, the 24th and 25th. So as we seek to be a blessing to others, we proclaim the gospel, and we, in your outline, display the gospel. We proclaim it and display it. We display it two ways. First, by our conversion. Verse 8, therefore we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Notice, you turned, you converted. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So contrary to those who say no change is necessary, To occur for those who have been saved. The evidence of the Thessalonians' genuine salvation is their conversion to God from idols. Notice, it's to God first and the result is from the idols. So we don't say when you get saved, look, give up this, 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 and this. What we do is we say, this is what you have now in Christ. And as you now serve Christ and embrace Christ and you love God with all your heart, mind and soul and your neighbor as yourself, there are some things that of necessity you put away. So what are your idols? You know, we think of an idol, you say, I don't have any, I don't have any statues, I don't have anybody I bow down to. Ah, but the Bible has a more robust definition of idol. The prophet Ezekiel, God through the prophet Ezekiel said, these men have set up idols, notice, in their hearts. It can be career, it can be family, it can be our bodies, it can be money. We know the Thessalonians did not bow at the altar of money because they're commended in the Bible for giving to the advance of the gospel, even though they themselves were poor. Thessalonica was part of Thessalonica was part of the province of Macedonia. And the Bible tells us this. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, including the Thessalonians. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. So friends, the biblical mission that we defined last week cannot go forward as it should so long as we worship at the altar of materialism. We're told in Scripture that we should be content with food and clothing, just the basic necessities of life. 1 Timothy chapter 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world, we'll take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now hear this. There's much that's being said today about living a radical Christian life. 
And people think that a radical Christian life means that you have to do something spectacular. I thank God for the people that are doing just really spectacular things. I mentioned Rob Howell earlier. I'm thankful for Emma and what she's committing to over these next three months. But overall, as you read scripture, here's what a radical Christian life is. A radical Christian life is a normal Christian life lived with radically different values for radically different purposes. It's a normal Christian life, but it's lived with radically different values and for radically different purposes. So those who are converted leave the idols to serve God. The gospel is displayed in our lives by conversion as we replace idols with love for God. And finally, the gospel is displayed by anticipation. Verse 10. We wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So we wait. But if we're going to live as we wait, these radical Christian lives, that is, a normal Christian life that's motivated by radically different values toward radically different ends. If we're going to do that, we're only going to do it because we know there's something better coming. And so as we wait, we look forward. And because we look forward, we now live these radically different lives in the present. If we're going to exercise the stewardship necessary to maximize our effectiveness for the gospel, then we'll need to learn something that people have forgotten in our day, deferred gratification. The truth is most of us want everything now, don't we? We find it hard to endure any discomfort or inconvenience. But if we believe our reward is in the next life, We'll have the freedom to work with all we have in this life. So your take-home truth is this. Because we have been blessed by the gospel, we must bless others with the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for gathering us. Thank you for your word that challenges us with regard to this model church. And Lord, we want to be that. Oh, that it would be said of us that we display the fruit of conversion. That we display the gospel in our lives. That we display an anticipation of our Lord's return in the way we live now. May the gospel ring out from this place so that we would be a model for others as well. All of this to bring glory to the one who has chosen us and who has saved us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.